Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. And um, so I, I guess a couple of things I would say, and, and if you're online with us, we're so glad you're here. Uh, welcome to Bethel Bible Church. Um, so I've been doing this uh, almost, well, no, it's actually longer. I, I've been doing this for 20 years, okay? And um, yeah. <clears throat> And you would think that after 20 years, there would, be, there, wouldn't, there would be less mistakes I would make in my life. But uh, let me tell you about a mistake I made. Uh, we put this sermon series together, Sermon on the Mount, and had a calendar. I mean, the calendar was in front of us, and it was certainly accurate. I just forgot to see that today was Father's Day. And so of all the passages in the Sermon on the Mount, on Father's Day, it's the one about money and where your treasure is. And so, if you're a dad here and you got like roped into coming, you know, and said, no, no, I promise, Bethel will be great. It won't make you feel weird or uncomfortable. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just bad planning, and I'll try not to do that next time. Uh, next year will be about how great you are. All right. But I do have, uh, and I got a whole file full of stuff I can only use a couple of times a year. So here, here it is. Here's your, here's your Father's Day stuff, all right? Three kids bragging about their fathers. I always like how these things start. The first kid says, my dad's so smart he can talk for one hour on any subject. Second kid, my dad's so smart he can talk for two hours on any subject. Third kid, my dad's so smart, he can talk for three hours and he doesn't even need a subject. <laughs> Sounds like my kids. So, uh, and, but dads, I'm going to be short today, and this is a true, that's a true deal, all right? Um, what's a father? Boy, answer to father's a person who has pictures in his wallet where he used to have money, like that one. Here's the third one, a wealthy Texan. This will lead us into the sermon. Wealthy Texan was in the habit of giving his dad unique gifts on Father's Day. One year it was uh, lessons on hand gliding. The year before that it was the entire record collection of Slim Whitman's hits. But this past year he felt like he had outdone himself. He purchased a rare kind of talking bird that could speak five languages and sing the Yellow Rose of Texas while standing on one foot. The talented bird cost $10,000, but he felt like it was worth every single penny. This would be a Father's Day gift his dad would never forget. So a week after Father's Day, calls his dad, said, Dad, how do you like the bird? And he said, it was delicious. Jesus is talking to us today in the Sermon on the Mount about misunderstanding value. So if you would, in Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to begin in verse 19, and I want to read a few verses here. We'll just go to verse 24. The, the title, the subtitle, if your Bible has headings, mine says, Lay Up Treasures in Heaven. That's the title. Here's how Jesus continues to teach his disciples in the crowd that is gathered 
in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I ask you'd help us this morning. We want to hear your words. We want to hear these words of your son, Jesus, your eternal son, Jesus, who speaks about treasure in a way that is so radically different from how everything else around us speaks about treasure. And Father, I have to think that as he stands there with his feet planted on earth, Father, he is overwhelmed with the reality of the treasure that he has spent eternity occupying with you. And so, Father, help us this morning. Jesus is going to give us a window into eternity. And, and at the same time, our, our feet right now are on, the, are on planet Earth. And so, help us to bridge that gap this morning as we talk about what is truly valuable. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, we've been looking at Sermon on the Mount. We've called it, you know, the Summer on the Mount. And the first half of chapter 6, Jesus talked about sort of these, um, what we might call the, uh, the, the private spiritual disciplines, or those things that are intimate or personal about our faith. He talked about giving. He talked about when we pray. He talked about when we fast. That those things that we do, that we do only for the Lord, we, we do them, Jesus says, in secret. We don't, we don't do them to garner favor from people around us. We, we do this in a way that we offer devotion to God and God alone. We have an audience of one. And while we made the point that, that secret does not mean that we have a private faith, it's certainly the re, there's realities about our faith that is public, but, but the motive behind our relationship with God is serving and knowing and intimately communing with God as our Father. That, that we're not doing it to put on a show. Well, after he moves from there, he turns and he's talking about the treasures that you, that, that you lay up, the, the things that you value. So, we'd say the first half of chapter 6 is about the spiritual disciplines. The second half of chapter 6, Jesus is going to address the challenges that we face in the world. 
And what he's saying is you can't face these challenges in the world unless you've first done business and faced the challenges in your heart and then remembering that in this world, our, fle- our, our battle's not flesh and blood. We, we battle against the spirit of the age that is all around us. He, he's concerned with sort of the, you might think about it this way, the public business that we attend to in the world Questions of money and possessions. He's going to go on. We'll look at next week. Food and drink and clothing, ambition. And the two major challenges are this one. We love the world. And we'll look next week. We're anxious about our life in the world. So I want to look this morning as Jesus addresses, what do we do with this love we have for the world? If you think about it, we, we talk in terms, sometimes we say things like secular and sacred, or secular and um, uh, religious. Secular is all that stuff Monday through Saturday. Sacred or religious is those things we do on Sunday. That's one simple way to do it. Sacred, this is all the things we do in the church or things that we might open in prayer. Secular, that's all the other stuff. Sacred is a certain uh, uh, station on the radio dial, and secular is everything else. And this is sort of how we think. But the reality is Jesus is going to confront us in such a way that if we're Christians, everything we do, however secular we might think it is, like shopping or cooking or working on a spreadsheet in the office, coaching Little League, all of this is sacred in the sense that it is done in God's presence and according to God's will. See, see, the first half, he was talking about this hypocrisy in religion. People were trying to do these religious things, like give and pray and fast in such a way that everybody saw what they did. And people would say, oh, man, isn't that guy so pious? Isn't that guy so religious? The, the contrast Jesus is making in this section, the second half of, of chapter 6, is sort of the materialism of the world. It is its own religion of sorts. See, worldly ambition, ambition in general, it's this fascinating thing for us. It it appeals to us, ambition does, to to one degree or another. These things that are more, we we feel the, the, the drive or the call or the pull things that are significant or big or glorious or we feel that. And I, I think there's some appeal to the divine in us, this, this created in the image of God. But what we find is that the world's definition of that or the world's offering of all that is always dissatisfying. It's a materialism rather than something found in the one whose image we were created in. 
But there is this sort of spell we all find ourselves under to some degree, and that spell of this stuff the world has to offer is hard to break. So this is why Jesus says, do not lay up treasures on earth where, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, but lay those up. Lay, for, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. And here's the reason. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. Is your heart tethered to this earth? Or do you have a heart that's tethered to heaven or to the kingdom of God or to life to come? Is your, is your heart tethered to what's temporary? Or is your heart tethered to what's eternal? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that, that eternity has been set in our hearts. So we have hearts wired for eternity. They will be dissatisfied to the degree they're tethered to the earth. The word treasure in these verses, it is the Greek word thesaurus. Actually, that word, that is, in fact, that's where we get, you know, uh, Roger's thesaurus. It's used 17 times in the New Testament. Most of it's used in Matthew. I, I was looking this way. I thought, well, that'd be interesting. Let me see if I can find something interesting about Peter Mark Roger. Born in the late 1700s, he started this thesaurus. He completed sort of the first round of it in 1805. It wasn't published till 1815. It was published with 15,000 words. It was born out of this guy's obsessive compulsive um, uh, drive to make lists of, of words. He had lists all over the place. So I was looking, I said, man, there's got to be something fascinating about this guy. Turns out, there's not. <laughs> I looked all over the place. Somebody wrote a biography about him. I said, looked it up. People were like, yeah, I mean, he wrote a thesaurus. But it is interesting. It's a treasury of words. That's what a thesaurus is. First published with 15,000 words, 44, no, 443,000 words in the latest publication. A treasury of words, a treasury of, what's your treasury of? Here's a question, when's a rich man poor? I got this list from someone and I could not track down where it was from, and so, no, it doesn't originate with me, but a rich man's poor when he tries to find satisfaction in his money because he'll never find it. Remember what Solomon said, Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money won't be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's the thing about it. You love money, you'll never be satisfied with it. You love wealth, you'll never have enough. It's vanity. Goes on, a rich man's poor when he tries to find satisfaction in what he has. A rich man's poor when his wealth increases his worry. 
A rich man's poor when he becomes a slave to his money. A rich man's poor when he has no treasure in heaven. Listen, Jesus is not saying, he's not saying there's no, you know, there's a ban on possessions, like you can't have stuff or own stuff. Scripture nowhere forbids private property. In fact, go to the Old Testament, there's all kinds of provisions about how you live on property that is yours. Secondly, in no way is Jesus saying that, you know, saving for rainy days forbidden or saving up for something that, you know, benefits your family, something that's, that's not it. It's not saying don't have insurance policies. On the contrary, Scripture says a lot about stewardship and prudence. It says, look at the ant. Stores food in the summer, eats in the winter, then it says, make a study of the ant. Fools are those that don't prepare for the future. Thirdly, Jesus is not saying that we are to despise all of the things we have or all the things that we enjoy. In fact, I think the Bible is very clear. We should enjoy um, the, the, the good things that God has created and the good things that God has blessed us with. We absolutely should enjoy those things. Having possessions, having provisions, uh, making provision for the future, enjoying the gifts of the Creator, all, all of these, all these are part of what we're granted, a freedom and a grace to enjoy. The, the problem becomes when we begin to accumulate in a way that puts ourselves at the center of our own universe. We accumulate in such a way that, that what is here and what we have has a tether on our heart. Materialism. Just simply the worship of stuff tethers our heart. You know, there's one way. If there's anything you have, you couldn't lose and still be happy, that's a good thing to audit in your life. Anything you have that you couldn't lose and still be happy, you ought to audit that. The hard-heartedness that, that only sees what you don't have and becomes blind to the needs of people around you, your heart is tethered in the wrong place. That that your worth or your significance or who you are or your standing or your confidence or your esteem comes from those things you possess or have achieved, your heart is tethered in the wrong place. Notice the difference in these treasures. One is 
fleeting. It's tethered to earth. The, the moth and the rust, they destroy it, which means there's never enough and it doesn't last. It's always eroding. There's one treasure that's fleeting. There is another that is eternal. It is laid up in heaven. And moth or rust, none of that destroys it. Nothing about what is laid up in heaven is eroded. There's also the difference, and one is secure. The other is insecure. It creates anxiety. It, it is that which needs to always be protected from someone who would want to steal it. The word, uh, uh, let's see, the, the word um, thief and the word steal, both the same word, were thieves. Thieve. The word's klepto in Greek. You know that word. One, one, one comes with it an inherent insecurity. One, and there's security that, that lasts forever. How do you know where your treasure is? Well, let me ask you this. What, what occupies your thoughts when you have nothing else to do? But what occupies your daydreams? Your investments, your position, your place in life, the, the easy life to come? If so, those things we treasure, and that's where our heart really is. Also, let me ask you this, what do you worry about the most? Is it in your home? Is it at your work? It's going to go on in, in the next half. We'll look next week. Is it the clothes you wear? Is it what people think about you when they see you? Do they, does what you have and what you present create the esteem that you're after? What, what do you worry about? There's another one. What are things we measure others by? This is revealing. How do you size people up? Does their education matter? What about where they live? What neighborhood? Their zip code? Their athletic prowess? I don't know. I'm intimidating to you, Johnny. I can't help it. What about their success in the business world? Is that how you measure people? That, it's instructive to us about where our treasure lies. Here's the last one I'll ask you about. What is it that you know you could not be happy without? What could you not be happy without? Jesus isn't calling for a life of asceticism. I already said, we're to, we're to enjoy the things in life. We're to, we're to receive blessings, enjoy them. We just don't hold them so tightly that the loss of any of them threatens our security or our joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, I do not cling to these things. 
They do not become the center of my life and existence. I do not live for them or dwell upon them constantly in my mind. They do not absorb my life. On the contrary, I hold them loosely. I'm not governed by them. Rather, I govern them. And as I do this, I'm steadily securing and safely laying up for myself treasures in heaven. What are you investing in? You know, you've heard it, your time, your, your talent, your treasures. What's the systematic investment of who you are and what you have? Where does that go? Do you know? See, I think there's two ways our treasure can be prioritized. I think one naturally comes to mind. I think there is another that Jesus is, is getting at in this passage. I'll see if I can illustrate it. Story told of a king who desired to know how much his three daughters loved him. So the first two, they come in and declare to their dad, who's the king, we love you more than all the gold and silver in the world. And that's kind of our default answer. Or at least we know, at least we know okay, well, that's at least the right answer. That, that, that no matter how much I had or have or will have, however awesome it really is and how much I enjoy it, how much I've been waiting for it and working to it. No matter what it is, I love Jesus more than I love that. We know that's the right answer. It's not something that we can achieve all on our own with our willpower. It's the answer of the third daughter that I think takes us underneath. Third comes and says, I love you better than salt. It's the king, he wasn't exactly elated to his youngest daughter's reply. He, he, he attributed it to her immaturity, but the cook who overheard her say that left salt out of the king's breakfast. It was then the father understood. What she's saying is, I love you so much, nothing is good without you. But this, this is what it means to treasure Christ above all things. Nothing I have is good without you. We can receive it as from the hand of God if we enjoy it because it's still in God's hand. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, everybody at the center of their soul has something they treasure. What does it mean to treasure something? Well, it means to look at something, fill your heart with beauty and the value of it, and to treasure something is to say, I have this, everything is worth it. If I have this, it's all worth it, and if I have this, I'm worth. In other words... Everybody has something. Might be money, might be career, might be status, might be romance, might be a family. You're looking at it, and it's your treasure, and you say, if I could have this, it'd all be worth it. 
It goes on. Everybody in this room has something on earth. They're doing that about everybody. If I had this, it would all be worth it, and then I'd be worth it. He says, my favorite fantasy book, The Lord of the Rings, which I've reread recently, is all about this special ring, and it's beautiful, and whoever owns it calls it the precious. Everyone who gets the ring, in a sense, comes under its power because you look at it, and everybody who gets it calls it my precious, the precious. That's what Jesus is saying. At the center of everybody's soul, there's the precious something that you've looked at, and you've said, this is precious to me. This is the thing that if I have it, it's all worth it. This is the thing that if I have it, then I'm worth it. You have something, whatever that is, you're enslaved to. Anything your soul treasures, once your soul treasures something, you'll pay any price for it. You'll do anything to get it. Because it's the only thing that's worth it, do you see? In the Bible, the Bible says every treasure but Jesus will insist that you die to purchase it. Jesus himself is the one treasure who died to purchase you. Anything else makes your supreme value say, die for me. But if you make Jesus Christ your supreme value, he's the one who said, I've died for you. Where is your treasure because where your treasure is, what you treasure, that's where your heart is. Well, he goes on. He talks about these competing treasures. He moves into, look in verses 22 to 23, these competing visions. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye's healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye's bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. There's two kinds of visions, if you will. One's clear and the other's dark. And the image is simple, right? The eye is this, is this window through which light comes into the body. If the window's clean, the glass is clear, the light comes in properly, lights the room. If the window's dirty, glass is tinted or discolored or uneven. The light is hindered. The amount and quality of light that comes into the room depends on the condition of the window through which it comes. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the light that comes into a man's soul or a woman's soul depends on the spiritual condition of the eye through which it comes. Healthy, bad. If you track that word healthy through the New Testament and you see how it is used most often, most often it means generous. Healthy means generous. Bad, you could say, then means ungenerous. carries the meaning. Uh, James 1.5, God is described as the one who gives generously to all. It's the same word. So, what Jesus is saying is the generous eye. You got a generous eye or an ungenerous eye? 
A generous eye or one that's divided and self-focused? See, the, the effects of an ungenerous spirit really are far worse than any of us realizes. One, it, it, it creates a loss of vision. This, this ungenerous spirit, one that is captured and tethered to this world and all of its material trappings, an ungenerous eye, an ungenerous soul shuts out the light of Christ. Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man. He refused to show mercy to a beggar at his gate. You know, he's self-centered, he's stingy, there's Lazarus. Just wanted the crumbs from the man's table. Death comes to both of them. Rich man goes to darkness. Goes into the darkness that his soul had been in already. He's in torment and he begs for a messenger to go and tell his living relatives the truth that he failed to see in his life. It, it shuts out the light of Christ when we're tethered to the world. It also creates and it sustains. We keep this up and it sustains our love for the world. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, uh, Paul talks about a man named Demas. Seemingly, he was a brother in Christ and a fellow in arms for the gospel, and yet Paul says that he forsook him because he, he loved this world. When our hearts tethered to the world, it creates a cloudiness about the way we look at life. When the things of this world become so in focus, we believe we can't be happy without them. There's an illustration. It's a king, an unhappy king, who learned a difficult lesson. He was so discontented with his life that he called in his wise men and asked them if they could help. And their consensus was that if the king could find a happy man and then borrow his shirt and wear it for his garment, he'd be happy just like that man was. So they sent out a whole delegation to find the happy man. And they searched and searched. They almost gave up. But at last, they found this man, this happy man, the one that fit the description. The only problem was he didn't have a shirt. I'll tell you, if Jeff Bice would be so happy for me to tell you this. If you've never saved up the money, gotten on an airplane, flown to a third world country to see what the church is doing in a different context, step off the plane and into a world that is really stripped of every creature comfort you didn't even realize that you had. And at first, all you can really, you know, get your mind around is how uncomfortable you might be, how different things are. 
how poor or impoverished things seem. Until you begin to encounter the people who are believers that you came to visit. And you will find, you will run straight into a joy that will be so conveyed. You, you, you all of a sudden will realize, oh yeah, I thought I was coming over here for them. They were really here for me. It clouds a vision of success. We begin to define success all the wrong ways. It clouds our visions of how we see other people. Let me say that it keeps us from having a healthy vision for our children's lives. If our primary hope for our children And, and what sits at the top of that is a great education and a great paying job and all of these things, that our vision for our children has moved from the vision that God desires us to have for our children. Well, that's great. I hope they have a great education. hope they get a great job. What we really hope is they have a heart that is captured by the grace of their Savior. It'll distort our vision for God's will in our life. We will begin to think, well, God's will for my life is always upward and onward when it comes to success or money or finances or significance or whatever. Maybe that's not always God's will. Well, he ends in verse 24 with competing masters. Competing treasures, competing visions, competing masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's a choice between God and money. It's a choice between the living creator himself or some object of our own creation. We can't serve both. Listen, money, let's go ahead and remind ourselves, money is not, it's, it's non-moral, it's amoral. It, it, there's no inherent evil in it and no inherent good in it. The questions of right and wrong have come with what do we do with money or anything that we value. You can put it to good use. You can put it to, to base and less in, unimportant use. The amount you have is not the determining factor. You can have a guy that works a minimum wage job who has a heart that's miserly and covetous. You can be somebody that has all the money in the world and find that you are incredibly generous. Love and hate. It's this idiom Jesus is using. You always prefer one over the other. 
There is no way to maintain a balance, equal affection. It's impossible. One will demand that in your love you despise and hate the other. Both of the masters. Is it Jesus? Is it your creator or that of your own creation? It makes the total demand upon you. Worldly things, whatever it is that your heart is tethered to on this earth, it demands your entire devotion if you are tethered to it. At the same time, you hear from the beginning of God's Word to the end, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. God wants all of you. Story told of a farmer. And one day he, you know, goes happily and with great joy in his heart to report to his wife that the family cow, their best cow, is going to give birth to twin calves, one red, one white. He said, you know, I suddenly have a feeling and impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. Bring them up together when the time comes. We'll sell one, keep the proceeds. We'll sell the other, and we'll give the proceeds to the Lord's work. So his wife asked him, guys like any of our wives would ask us, so which, which one are you going to dedicate to the Lord? He said, oh, well, there's no need to bother about that right now. I mean, we'll treat them both the same way. When the time comes, as we'll do as I say. So off he went. A few months later, the man comes, enters the kitchen. He's kind of miserable looking, a little unhappy. His wife says, well, what's, well, what's wrong? He says, well, I've got some bad news. The Lord's calf's dead. He says, wait a minute. You thought you hadn't decided which one was going to be the Lord's calf. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've always decided it was going to be the white one, and it's the white one that's dead. It's the Lord's calf that's dead. It's always the Lord's calf that's dead, isn't it? So maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've been chasing stuff your whole life. Maybe it's caught up with you. The satisfaction, all of the things you've been running after, you've never been able to catch it. Maybe you're the prodigal. You wanted all your stuff. You took away. So I want, I want what's mine. I don't want the Father. What you've been chasing left your heart empty and wrung out. Maybe that's you this morning. There's a Spanish story. I'll close with this. Father and a son, they'd become estranged. Son ran away, pursuing his own thing, took what was his. Father set off to find him, searched for him for months, into years with no avail. 
Finally, this last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper. Here's what the ad read. Paco. My dearest Paco. Meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon on Sunday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their father. Jesus came so that you could know his father, so you could know your father. It's a great morning to say, you know what? I'm not chasing this treasure anymore. There is a different treasure that my heart is feeling right now I ought to get after chasing. There's a different set of affections I have sought to ignore for very long, and this morning I don't want to ignore those anymore. I'm going to give way to those affections, those, those affections, the, the eternity that was set in your heart. Let me tell you, your affection, that affection you long for, that you're, you feel the moorings for, that is an affection for the very Son of God. His name is Jesus. He stepped out of eternity into time and space. He took on all that we are. And he died for all that we are. He died for you. He died for me. He died your death. He died my death. And he laid in a grave for three days. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering death offering us life, life forever. Life that does not decay, life that is secure for always. If you've never put your affection there, this morning do that. I trust you, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. This is what my heart has been longing for. This, this is what, this is what I was made for. If you're already a believer this morning, I ask the Lord would rekindle those affections. You wouldn't leave here chasing anything other than what God created you for. If you would, let's, let's bow. Father, do what only you can do, and that's it's beyond what I, as a preacher standing up in front of a group of people, can do. Father, it's more than what our wives can do in us or our husbands can do in us or what our parents can do in us. What we're asking you to do is we're asking you to work at the deepest places inside of us. We call it our heart. We call it our soul. It's the place our affections arise from. And so, Father, I pray you'd sour the taste of all the other things we've been chasing after. This morning we would be reminded of our of the satisfaction that is found in you. So Father, I pray you'd meet us where we are this morning by your Spirit drawing us to your Son and that your Word would not return void, we pray in Jesus' name.